Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at the importance of place and space with Rachel Stott of Refraction. Among the topics we'll discuss are how the physical environment of a workplace can have a marked impact on the performance of the teams that work in it, some of the research Rachel conducted over the course of a three-year period to come to some of these conclusions, why the angle at which a chair can recline can actually influence the way meetings unfold, and how all of these ideas are being put into practice at a co-working space in Northern Virginia called Refraction. Here with us today to talk about all that and more is Rachel Stott. Rachel is the Director of Refraction, a co-working space in Reston, Virginia, for business leaders, creatives, and philanthropists. Refraction is a curated hub of creativity, collaboration, and innovation that helps businesses build more dynamic teams and grow their company. Given that we here at the Innovation Engine have much the same mission, we thought it only made sense to have Rachel on the podcast to share lessons she has learned over years of research into what it takes to build high-performing teams and company cultures. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you. Good to be here. Absolutely. We're excited to have you. So let's start off this episode with a little bit of background. What is Refraction and what's your mission there? Right. So Refraction is a co-working space, but uh, more than that, we're a co-working community. And that's almost a little bit passe to say these days, but we are a curated community uh, that specifically serve business leaders, creatives, philanthropists um, in Northern Virginia. So we are deeply interested in culture and culture insofar as that it supports innovation and high performance. Um, and we have spent a lot of time and effort in researching practices and uh, the physical design of the space in such a way that the community can experiment with groundbreaking research around culture. Um, and our, our secret little hope is that we get startups while they're young um, and they're small, typically two to four people when they join. Um, and we do hope that all of them become the next eBay or Google or, you know, TrackMaven or Cvent or whatever it is that they're going to grow into. And if we help them intentionally build a culture and business practices early on um, that make them more inclusive, that make them more um, mindful of the communities that they're serving as they grow, uh, that make them more sustainable in their practices, that when they are a lovely unicorn, um, <laughs> that their impact on uh, not just the employees that they serve and the communities that are their subscribers or their customers, but the broader community, that they, they have um, such an opportunity at that point to be uh, an incredible force for good in the world. And we hope that while they are building great revenue streams and um, working on their minimum viable product and, and those kinds of things, that they're also learning how to do that in such a way that they're, um, they're doing well as well as doing good. And you've taken kind of a scientific approach to figuring out what it takes to build an environment where creativity and innovation can really flourish. So can you share with listeners a little bit of information about the research you conducted over the course of the last three years and the types of subjects that you interviewed? Yeah, I'm a research bunny. It's a, a scientific term. Um, 
And I'm, I'm deeply curious about kind of the bleeding edge of how we get the best out of people. And uh, there's roughly 6,000 PhDs that come out every year. Most of them are read by three people. Um, so if you add those PhDs on top of all of the academic research that happens globally, there is a tremendous swelling of our bleeding edge research um, in everything, but also especially in management, in people, in neuroscience, and in all the things that, that make us better at what we do and more fulfilled in the process. Um, and so I spent uh, three years reading those kinds of papers that CEOs simply don't have the time or the scope to do. No CEO I know has time to read a 70-page dissertation on neuroscience and how changing small tweaks in a meeting can make his team um, higher performing or her team higher performing, but I do. So over the past uh, three years, I've dug into everything from environmental psychology and interior design, innovation, collaboration, culture, neuroscience and biochemistry, high performance teams, placemaking, engagement, vulnerability, trust, inclusivity, and mindfulness. And that's just the academic piece. Um, I also spent some time doing some um, some informal um, primary research. So I uh, went and visited co-working spaces, obviously in DC and the DC region in Sydney, Australia, where my accent might um, let you know I'm from, San Francisco, um, and even some co-working and community spaces in places like post-disaster Haiti and post-disaster um, Philippines. Um, I spoke with heads of culture at unicorns like Tulio and Lyft and Uber. Um, and we spoke to representatives of different generations, different industries, different departments uh, to understand how they use space, how they find themselves most productive, uh, what spaces they liked and disliked. Um, and then we went to the experts. So I spoke to professors in culture um, and high performance, spoke to architecture teams in Australia and the US and Scandinavia. And after talking to all of those disparate audiences, what were some of the key findings to come out of those talks? And how did those findings feed into what you've done at Refraction? Um, we gathered a lot of a lot of data, a lot of it that we didn't, uh, that felt intuitive, maybe a lot of that, that surprised us. Um, so my, my favorite story in at least the face-to-face -face consultation is we bought in kind of our, a bunch of department heads and uh, developers and marketers, and we did all of those kinds of things. And then we bought in very specifically some of our very millennial Gen Y uh, groups. And we asked them exactly the same questions that we'd asked everybody else. We asked them which of our existing meeting rooms that were specifically structured based on different research to achieve different things. So we knew what we were asking them about um, and what the data was going to tell us. We asked them which of the meeting rooms they preferred. And the thing that struck us was they couldn't give us an answer uh, because they actually preferred meeting outside of meeting rooms. So even our own assumptions um, around the data we were looking for in some cases were proven to be wrong in the process. So um, one of the things that I did learn um, is that we are moving so quickly culturally and in environments and how we collaborate together and how creativity happens um, that even something that was current for us three years ago is already shifting very quickly today. Um, 
So the importance of checking in and either doing the observational work or doing the direct question asking um, is vital. Uh, some of the other things that we learned were the simplest choices actually make a drastic difference in some cases. So some research done um, on the West Coast around art. And so the, the types of art that you have on your walls can have a marked impact on how successful females in technology feel that they can be in a space. And so the research was done with um, kind of geek culture accoutrements. So Star Trek, Star Wars, Marvel, Harry Potter style stuff. And women and men were given surveys after they walked into a room and were in it for a short amount of time of kind of how successful they felt they might be able to be in this environment um, and in this culture. And then uh, a fresh group was given the same survey after walking into the same room where the art had been changed to geometric art or nature pieces. Um, and the scores for the gentlemen were the same across the board. Um, but what was um, surprising was the females actually reported higher likelihood of success that they felt after a very short amount of time in the room that had uh, geographic art and nature art versus something that had geek culture um, on the walls. And that held true for even women who self-identified as geeks. Um, so choices of what goes on your wall, the how far a chair will recline um, can change the way that a meeting goes down. The shape of a meeting room table can change the way a meeting goes down. Um, so some really nuanced uh, details can uh, impact the way that humans interact with their environment. Um, so for us, we did a lot of iteration to figure out kind of where for our community those nuances should be tweaked and, and we iterate on a, a regular basis. Um, but the, I guess, the lowest barrier to entry thing that everybody can do because obviously, you know, being very specific about your art choices or the 30-degree angle of a chair recline is beyond most um, is really making sure that there are third spaces in the office. So not someone's individual desk, not somebody's meeting room um, location where you, you go with your laptop or your notepad to kind of take notes and make decisions, but those third spaces because uh, research shows us that most collaboration starts in transition. So areas in and around lobbies, in the kitchen, um, you often find, and I, I think we're all maybe guilty of this, is you kind of have a solid one-hour meeting and then you follow up on that one loose end that intrigues you as you're walking out the door with someone and you tend to kind of hold onto the back of the chair or lean against a door frame or hover in the hallway outside of the meeting room. Uh, so you continue the conversation that really intrigues you, which is usually like the beginning of that red string for collaboration and, and hopefully leads to innovation. Um, and if those environments are set up in such a way that there isn't a third space to capture that, where people feel like they can hover or they can maybe bunk down on a couch for a short time um, and kind of flesh out that conversation to the point where they could follow up on it, um, then you really lose a lot of the collaboration that would have otherwise happened in that space. So um, making sure there are kind of 
wider hallways that maybe have chairs or couches in them, making sure your lobbies and your communal spaces have plenty of places to sit down and little nooks that people can take advantage of, making sure there's power um, everywhere uh, and great Wi-Fi everywhere. Um, those are the locations that often will be the beginning point um, of, of connection between people, collaboration between people, and then if they have different perspectives and different skill sets, then, then innovation between people. And let me ask, just going back to what you said about, uh, about, about females feeling more comfortable being in spaces where there is geometric art, does the research also bear out that actual performance is affected by that? So they, they may feel that their performance would be better in that setting, but does research show that that's actually the case? The the particular study didn't go that far. The mm -hmm. study was looking at um, the comfort levels and the feelings of success. Um, and because it was done in a controlled environment in a college environment, that way they could control like it was a, um, a proper experiment as opposed to a workplace observation. Yep. Um, that the the research couldn't extrapolate that way. There is enough research to... In, in neuroscience and, and biochemistry to suggest that if somebody is triggered in that way, then it actually does change their biochemistry and then the neural feedback. And it does make it more difficult for them to use their uh, executive functioning. Um, so that decision making, that empathy, um, that visioning new solutions and next steps and, and things that are necessary for most of us in kind of the information age, or particularly in technology, um, and the information ecosystems to succeed, but there hasn't been any causal lines drawn as yet. Okay. Got it. And you mentioned that you talked to people throughout the world in Silicon Valley and other parts of the U S Australia, Scandinavia, Haiti. What were some of the things that seemed to be universal across cultures? Oh, um, there's two things that, um, I think will be forever at the heart of any space that I build, um, or even that I manage or, or help people with is, um, the kitchen is the heart of the space. <laughs> um, and, and it's not just kind of a cliche that the kitchen's the heart of the home. Um, but as humans, we're wired to connect and we are wired to connect over food um, it's one thing that every culture connects over. Um, so it was something that's incredibly consistent across the board. Um, and a lot of the spaces that weren't intentionally designed still found that a lot of collaboration happened in and around the kitchen. So it's the whole kind of watering hole or water cooler effect, um, that people all continuously go back there. They also go back to a kitchen in a different brain space. So they don't go to the kitchen with their headphones on with a specific goal of needing to get something done in the next 20 minutes. People go to the kitchen for a break. So they're already in a different space. Um, their, their neurochemistry, sorry, their, their um, biochemistry and their neurology is in a different place as well. Um, if we've just eaten, we're probably more likely to have oxytocin flowing, which is the hormone that helps us connect to other people um, and makes us feel kind of fat and happy and want a siesta after lunch. Um, so for a number of reasons, where you put the kitchen, the facilities that you put adjacent to the, the kitchen, how visible the kitchen is, all of those things actually will make a significant uh, difference to collaboration, the type of collaboration that happens there. Uh, the other thing that was incredibly 
um, and surprisingly consistent across the board was we all want autonomy. And since we've moved from kind of the 80s bullpens um, into more flexible working environments, and now that we all have a laptop and Wi-Fi and we can work just as effectively on our couch at home um, or on our phone at the park or in a cafe as we can in the office, um, we are less likely to want to sit at a desk all day um, or stand at a standing desk all day. Um, And so that autonomy of choice with where in our work environment that we choose to work and having a really diverse array of work style environments. So phone rooms, kind of individual booths, meeting rooms, um, casual spaces like couches, uh, spaces that have lots of uh, windows or quiet spaces or long benching, um, giving people the option Uh, so that they can go and choose the environment that best suits how they're feeling and the type of work that they're doing at that point, Um, that was consistent even when language wasn't. And let me ask on the flip side, were there certain things that seemed to be specific to one culture or country or another that didn't really translate to other areas that you studied? Yeah, for sure. In Scandinavia, the entryway even in a lot of professional um, commercial setups, is through the kitchen. So you walk in through people you've never met before eating lunch. And um, that wouldn't really fly in the States. It certainly wouldn't fly in Australia. So there were pieces, um, the kitchen is still important in all locations. And in Haiti, there's actually, um, people are quite formal. And so it would be considered a slight in Haiti, um, if that was the case. Also, um, frivolity. In the valley, there's a capacity for um, frivolity and play, so long as it's paired with outcomes. Um, So, for example, Lyft's main reception desk is covered in um, giant pink pool noodles that are covered in kind of pink neoprene. So it's supposed to be a macro of their, their logo's pink mustache. Um, So it's a round, giant desk that you can't get within a foot of because the mustache literally sticks out towards you. Um, And their lift, um, the inside of their elevators, are covered in like a fuzzy, pink, felty, furry fabric. Um, So there's a frivolity that you could get away with there. Also, there's some other um, uh, unicorns in the valley that have kind of bright, brilliant vinyls and posters on the wall that that speak to like make someone's day and be happy and and things like that. That um, in a culture like Australia, that uh, is very uh, laid back but also very grounded um, and kind of soul to the earth, even in business, um, that would elicit eye rolls, uh, for example. And you would not see. I have never seen anything even remotely close to anything like that in Haiti. Uh, and then when you get to Australia, there's more cultural practices, um, that wouldn't be seen elsewhere, maybe in Haiti. Um, but in Australian startup offices, it is absolutely normal to have a mini fridge that has beer in it. Even if there's only four or five people, there will be a beer fridge. Um, even if there's no space to put lunch in it and you will probably clock off at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon to have a beer at your desk with your team, whether you're crushing it and hitting your metrics or whether you are all severely struggling. It's kind of a cultural touchstone. Uh, Whereas in places like the US, it's usually 
either to, to blow off steam or it's a reward for a great week. Um, and in Haiti, it would never happen until after kind of close of business. Um, so there are pieces in each of um, the environments that you, you would be unlikely to see elsewhere. Yeah. And are there any kind of litmus tests that you recommend people use to see whether or not the changes they're putting into practice in the workplace are actually having the effect that they intend them to? Yeah, this is a difficult one because unless you have an, a control group that um, the intervention doesn't apply to, it can be really hard to tell. Um, there are a couple of lagging indicators that we take a look at that give us indications as to um, how well the space is being used um, and whether the cultural implications of that are actually flowing on from the space itself. So uh, one of the big ones is we look at engagement. So engagement surveys and pulse surveys and things like that can give you a really great insight into the culture and the space. Um, we look at the data in our booking systems on the use of the space um, and we have uh, glass sidelights in all of our meeting rooms, which was um, a really great piece of design um, for us that allows us not just um, to have people find and join meetings when they're running late or find somebody if there's an emergency or something's cropped up, but also allows us to observe. Um, we look at what spaces are used, when and how often. Um, because we did design very specific spaces for specific tasks. So it gives us the capacity to see uh, if that's the same group or the same person who maybe just has fallen in love with that type of meeting room or whether it's used across the board, how often it's used, um, and compare that to our previous data uh, when we didn't have those meeting rooms and what type of meeting rooms we used to kind of extrapolate um, what functions happen in different places and how often. Um and another one that we used as a very easy litmus test is when we first built, because Refractions had two iterations. We had our very, very low budget um, Hackett um, iteration where we didn't move any walls. We didn't change um, carpet or anything else like that. We just uh, did the best we could with the bones that we inherited in a sublease. Um, and when we did that, we made specific meeting rooms and specific uh, collaboration spaces. And then we shared with the whole community um, what they were, how to use them, why they were designed and encouraged them to experiment with it. So they had a good two years of understanding when to use a straight back chair, when to use a chair that reclined, when to do a standing meeting or to sit on stools and things like that. What the difference in uh, the implication to the culture in a room is having a round table versus a table ahead um, and all of those kinds of things. And when we uh, did our consultation and uh, we did the research and designed the second iteration of the space, they already came with that data. Um, but there was about 50% of the rooms that we hadn't shared with them before. They didn't know what to do with them. Um, we hadn't clued them in on the research. And I think the thing that made us most excited was by 9am on the first day that we opened the space, um, all of those rooms were in use. So the UX of the space um, was such that people knew instinctively what to do in each room um, and how to do it. And so that for us was a, um, a good indication that we got it right and that they were um, able to use the space the way it was intended. Um, but if there is no other litmus, my 
uh, cheat sheet would be take a look at your third spaces. Are there people collaborating in the kitchen? Are there people lingering in the hallway? Is there conversation happening that isn't people kind of leaning over somebody else's desk? Is there conversation that is happening that is originating um, spontaneously and serendipitously um, outside of the intent specifically to work with someone at that moment? So either in a meeting or at their desk, that would be my number one indicator that you've created a space that will facilitate connection and creativity and innovation. Okay, and I have to ask, because it's the second time you've mentioned it, what's the association with how far a chair will recline and how successful a meeting <laughs> will be? And when should you have a meeting with straight back chairs? And when should you have one where they will, where they will recline? So environmental psychology is awesome, and it's been around for a long time. But D-School, um, not that long ago, actually started playing around with the, the minutiae of, um, I guess, industrial design and environmental psychology. And so they, they ran a series of experiments around what, how people interact in a meeting and the furniture that's around in that meeting. And so they took it to the nth degree and they ran experiments running meetings in sandboxes to see how that contrasted to some of the other things that they tried. And so there's a couple of key things that, um, that help with um, meeting furniture is a round table is always best. Um, if you're trying to build consensus and things like that, uh, a head of the table is only ever useful if you need to use the authority that naturally comes with the head of the table. And that's only useful if you're the one sitting at the end, the head of the table. Um, and if you really want to build rapport with someone, there should be no table or a coffee table. Uh, there should be nothing physically between you. So kind of uh, two couches or armchairs sitting at an angle to each other as opposed to face-to-face, -to -face, but kind of angled towards each other um, is a better way to have those more informal or difficult conversations. Um, but with the recline of a desk chair, for example, or a meeting room chair is if we can recline the chair roughly 30 degrees, that gives us the capacity to, and if you imagine someone reclining in a chair, imagine them folding their arms across their chest and then just crossing one leg over the other knee. Now, that's a stock standard pose if you've ever been in an investor meeting of the go ahead impress me that an investor typically gives to a startup um, when they're pitching for cash. It's also um, what... Uh, collaborators do when they're distrusting or disbelieving or frustrated. Um, it's a really closed off posture. And that recline actually allows us to play devil's advocate um, and to disengage. Because if you think about yourself, if you're on a first date or you're talking with friends, you typically lean forward when you're engaged with someone, when you're interested, when you want to learn more. It's like there's a string from the center of your chest that's pulling you forward and your forehead leans forward and your body kind of tilts in that person's direction. And that's when you know the date's going well um, or that you're in a good meeting, when people start leaning forward and asking questions. Now, if you're in a chair that has you reclining, then there's a, a double-edged sword to biofeedback. When you lean forward, it makes you feel engaged. When you lean back, it makes you feel disengaged. And if you're disengaged, you will lean back. If you lean forward, you will engage. So if you are naturally leaning back because it's physically comfortable, you're more likely to play devil's advocate whether you feel that way or not. And so we only have reclining chairs in our boardroom. And that's because if you're in a board meeting or you're in a strategy discussion and you're there for a long time and you really need to flesh something out, having the devil's advocates able to 
advocate and to debate and tease that out is a wildly valuable thing. But if you're in a one-on-one with your team lead and you're leaning back or your team lead is leaning back, then that meeting is going to be a disaster. At the very least, it's going to erode rapport and it's certainly not going to support um, improved future performance. If you want to force people to engage that maybe don't really want to or if you want to set a context where people are going to engage in what might have been um, a difficult conversation to start and things like that, then you want them on stools because there's no there's no way you can recline at all. You have to engage um, your abdominals and your core in order to sit on a stool. Um, and that forces us for comfort because we're all lazy and our core is weak. Uh, that forces us to lean forward. And so we're already telling our body that we're engaged and we're interested and we're open in this conversation, even if we weren't mentally feeling that way to begin with. Um, So any meeting that's an hour or so should be in a non-reclinable straight back chair. Any 20 to 30 minute meeting that might be difficult to start off should be on a stool. Any of the long-term strategy meetings that might take you a number of hours, let people recline if they want to. And if you really, really want to generate new ideas or address a problem, you should walk into a room that has no furniture in it at all. You should not take a pen. You should not take a, a notepad. You should certainly not take your cell phone or your laptop. Um, it could have a, a round table in the middle of it, like a round standing table or nothing at all. Because the moment we walk into a room with nothing, then we've let go of our need to protect our territory. And so if we offer an idea or if somebody improves our idea, we're less likely to defend it or to fight over credit or to want to protect the idea as we offered it up. If we walk into an environment where there is no sense of territory, then the ideas are more likely to flow and uh, the space itself is not going to impede the flow of ideas. If you walk into a round, a table with a a room with a round table um, and you put down even your laptop on the desk and you don't even look at it afterwards, or you put down your coffee mug on the desk and you don't even look at it afterwards and there's two of you at a whiteboard, you still may be more inclined to um, to protect and defend the ideas that you offer um, than you would if you walked into a room with nothing at all. Wow, that is fascinating. You, you can't see me, but, yeah, I'm, but, I'm, but I'm leaning into the microphone at about a 45 degree <laughs> angle. <laughs> yeah, so, so we, we teach our guys these really basic truths and give them an opportunity to experiment with it. Because the thing that um, is, I guess, my worst nightmare is someone comes into the space and grows their team until they're, they're big enough that they should be in their own space. And then they leave and then they mimic the color that we have on the wall or they mimic the layout of our desks or they have a full snack bar in the kitchen, which we we have. And they assume that that was the key to why they were really productive in a space. And, um, and I've, I've seen it with a, a number of groups in other spaces and co-working spaces and managed offices and all of those kinds of things. They loved it. And then they went to their own office and it fell flat. And they weren't sure if it was that suddenly they were disconnected from a community, which may be the case, or if they just, they didn't spend, you know, the $800 on a Herman Miller era chair. Um, when in reality, it's that they had interior designers and architects build spaces to facilitate collaboration. They just never let them in on the secret of what it was about that space that helped them be productive. And so we wanted to lift the veil on that and other small bits of research that without even knowing it, um, 
teams can incorporate with a really low barrier to entry that might change the way that they run their meetings or that they do their space or that they engage with their team. Because um, I, I don't think it needs to take, you know, 70 pages and, and years of research um, to to integrate some of this knowledge. Um, it just needs somebody that's willing to share it to you in, in kind of a, a really simple way. So one of your particular areas of interest is regional innovation I think we all know what those two words mean on their own, but what do you mean when you talk about regional innovation? Region in this sense depends on on who you're speaking to and I guess your stakeholders. There's three levels of region. There's hyperlocal. Um, so innovation districts are a hyperlocal region. Um, then you have a county or a number of counties, which would be a region, say Northern Virginia or Fairfax County. Um, and then you've got the census region, like the DMV, which essentially is just a measure of how far the employment pool will commute to a job. And regional innovation works on all three of those levels, um, from ecosystem to kind of census city. Um, and innovation itself is is simply the bringing to bear of new ideas. And that's not news to anybody. But for me, the research that I've done being that I'm such a, a people and research person is that innovation is cultural. So innovation requires engaged people collaborating across differences. So that requires engagement, collaboration, and inclusivity. And so innovation happens when you have experts from different industries or different backgrounds or different perspectives um, that care enough about what they're doing that when they bump into each other, they're able to apply those new ideas to new contexts. And so when we're talking, uh, at least for me, around regional innovation, we're talking about facilitating that serendipity in a, a hyperlocal area, like an innovation district or in a co-working space um, within an innovation district. But then we're also talking about the the governmental, the societal, the logistical infrastructure that allows those facilitated serendipities, those engaged people to bump into each other on a larger scale. And moving forward, all of the science that we're seeing um, from our think tanks to our academics and beyond is that innovation drives our ecosystems and our economies. And to have regional innovation is really having a, um, a synergy between education, business, government, uh, and the community to understand how we can just slightly augment um, what's currently happening so that we can come up with new ideas, better ideas, uh, we can commercialize them and then see them realize their benefit to both our businesses and our communities um, as quickly as possible. Nice. Well, on that front, thank you for everything that you're doing in the Northern Virginia community. Uh, for any of our listeners out there who may be interested in getting involved at Refraction or finding out more, where can they do so? Uh, refractionpoint.org. Um, you can also find us on um, on Twitter and Facebook. But um, refractionpoint.org is the best place, and that way you can jump on our mailing list. Uh, we shoot out tips and tricks on a pretty regular basis, and we also loop you into community-based events within Refraction and also in the wider um, ecosystem. Okay, nice. Well, Rachel, thanks so much for uh, for coming on to talk about the importance of place and space. If we learned one thing today, it will be that we work on those third spaces around the office um, mm -hmm. and uh, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Absolutely. 
If you'd like to learn more about Rachel Stott, you can follow her on Twitter at at Rachel Stott. That's R-A-C-H-A-E-L-S-T-O-T-T. If you'd like to find out more about the Refraction Co. working space, you can visit their website at www.refractionpoint.org. And you can also follow them on Twitter at at RefractionPT. If you liked what you heard on this episode, please help spread the word about the podcast on your social media networks of choice. If that happens to be Twitter, don't forget to mention at RefractionPT, at Rachel Stott, and or at Three Pillar Global. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine Podcast is produced by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Go to our website at www.3pillarglobal.com to find out more about our services. You can subscribe to the Innovation Engine through the iOS podcast app, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. And you can also ensure that you never miss an episode by going to 3pillarglobal.com podcast. There you can sign up to receive fresh new episodes of the Innovation Engine in your inbox each time one comes out. You can also download our very own iOS app designed and developed in-house here at 3Pillar by searching for the Innovation Engine in the iTunes App Store. If you like what you hear on the Innovation Engine and you live in the world of product and software development, you may like our sister podcast, Take 3. You can find Take 3 at soundcloud.com slash take3pillar with the number 3 or on iOS devices by searching for Take and the number 3 in the podcast app. On each episode, my partner in crime, Julia Slattery, talks with two Three Pillar team members to get quick takes on the trends, technologies, and tools that are changing the way software gets made and business gets done.